0: This is Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Museum of Warm Springs is celebrating 30 years with a tribal youth exhibit, and the Alaska Native Heritage Center is kicking off its holiday bazaar. Those are two of the tribally run institutions we're featuring as we head into Tribal Museums Day. Does your tribe or native community operate a museum? We'll talk with native museum staff about their important work right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Ahead of next week's White House Tribal Nation Summit, we're taking a look at some of the priorities of U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who will chair the summit in Washington, D.C. One initiative is her investigation into the troubling legacy of U.S. Indian boarding schools. Earlier this month, Holland completed the 12th and final stop on the Road to Healing tour. The year-long tour across the country provided the opportunity for survivors of federal Indian boarding schools to share their stories with Holland and other federal leaders. The tour also connected communities with trauma-informed support and gathered permanent oral histories. Just two days after the final stop, Holland reflected on the healing tour during an interview with New Mexico PBS. In
2: so many instances, uh, folks have told us that uh, they were reluctant to share a thing with their families, but felt it was time to finally say something about the experiences that they have had. We feel that is, you know, that's healing for, for people. And uh, that was the purpose of, of our road to healing was to really start um, healing for the country. This, this is a history that all Americans share, not just Native Americans. And so ensuring that we are uh, open and honest about the past history of this country was, is, has been really important to us. And I, I think overall, uh, it's been a really good experience for everyone who has participated.
1: Holland says... Further healing efforts will include native language preservation and an oral history project.
2: We want to make sure that um, that that information is open to um, the, our larger uh, country, so that people can learn. and And you know, it, it, it'll take a lot to heal, but uh, certainly ensuring that uh, we can help with things that Indian communities have have lost during these assimilation policies, and namely, I should say, um, native languages. That was a topic that was so often reiterated around the country. Um, And so we know that President Biden has been incredibly supportive of native language preservation, and we'll continue with that as well.
1: Holland will join White House officials in chairing the 2023 White House Tribal Nation Summit, which provides an opportunity for tribal leaders from the 574 federally recognized tribes across the country to engage with the Biden administration. The fourth season of the show, Native Shorts, presented by the Sundance Institute's Indigenous Films Program, premieres Thursday night on FNX Television. KMBA's Jill Freitas spoke with one of the show's hosts about the new season.
3: The show focuses on short Indigenous films from around the world. Host Ariel Tweedo is a Nupiak. She connects with the everyday viewer asking questions that the audience might have about the film. Tweedo says they have a lengthy process to choose which episodes air on the show.
4: I mean, we want a diverse array of films or genres and so they'll find a horror, a romance, a like comedy, um, something very abstract and so they they want to get films from like all over.
3: From New Zealand to Australia to the Aleutian Chain of Alaska, Indigenous filmmakers share stories of their cultures and ways of life. Tweedo says she notices a lot of differences from one continent to the next.
4: Just to see how other people live or other points of living is, I think, really special. I've learned a lot just about different cultures from around the world. And so I think that's really cool and different ways of storytelling. How someone in New Zealand tells a story a lot different than someone, say, from Finland. And just it's cool to see the diversity.
3: Tweedo says Native Shorts is a great platform to showcase short films, but in the past it was only
1: shown at film festivals. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation,
5: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStross.com. Frybread, that's the message. Support by Val's Frybread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at ValsFryBread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America calling. I'm Sean Spruce hosting in Anchorage, Alaska. Tribal Museums are on the forefront of representing Native culture and history accurately and effectively. They also advocate for best practices when it comes to repatriation, displays of artifacts and exhibits and sorting archives. As Tribal Museum Day approaches, we'll get a rundown of some museums that are making a difference in their communities, including the Alaska Native Heritage Center, which was named an American cultural treasure, and the museum at Warm Springs. They're celebrating their 30th year, which makes them one of the oldest tribal museums in the country and the first in the state of Oregon. We'll also hear from the director of Hochokati, one of the newest tribal museums in Minnesota. Join today's conversation by telling us about the tribal museum where you live. What do you like most about the exhibits, the galleries, and the programs they offer? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1 800 99 Native. On the line now in Middleville, Michigan, is Shannon Martin. She's the Tribal Museums Day Consultant for the Association on American Indian Affairs. She is Gun Lake, Potawatomi. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to Native America Calling.
4: Annie, Boujou.
0: Bujo to you as well. In Warm Springs, Oregon, we have Elizabeth Woody she's the executive director of the museums at warm springs and she's enrolled in the confederated tribes of warm springs she's also navajo and yakima hello elizabeth how are you doing
3: i'm doing fine nice Schmitzky. good morning
0: good morning joining us now from shakopee minnesota is andy Vig. he's the director of hochokata tea He's a member of the Shakopee-Middlewankenton Sioux Community. Andy, hello, thanks for joining us.
6: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And in Anchorage, Alaska, we're joined by Angie Dema. She's the senior curator at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. Hello, Angela, it's great to have you on the show as well.
7: Good morning, um, thanks for having me.
0: You bet, you bet. Well, I'd like to begin with Shannon today, and Shannon, if you could, please remind us why it's important to recognize tribal museums and celebrate their work.
4: Well, tribal museums bring attention to our diverse nations and cultures. Oftentimes, our country thinks we're a monolithic people, Uh, so we understand tribal museums and cultural centers uh, bring great knowledge and truth to the country, and... You know, reshape the minds of folks who have, you know, been forced fed, uh an untruthful history. So we're better to go learn about our people, but directly from our museums and cultural centers. And the Association on American Indian Affairs, in recognition celebration of their hundredth anniversary last year, well, they decided they wanted to give back uh, to our people and they created and inaugurated the first Tribal Museums Day, which was held last year on December 3rd, 2022. And deemed from that day forward, Tribal Museums Day would be held and recognized every first Saturday of December. And this year, they've added the recognition to include the following week. So we want to celebrate tribal museums and cultural centers across the country from December 2nd to December 9th.
0: Shannon, about how many tribal museums are there nationwide now?
4: Well, we count about 140, 140 that are uh, tribally owned and operated. Uh, There are tribal museums that are are considered um, hybrids where they work uh, and are managed cooperatively with like a state historic uh, society or a a state government or, or are comprised by federal funding. Um, but um, there are about 140 that are tribally owned and operated.
0: And from those 140 tribally owned and operated museums, what are the trends you're seeing that, that has have you most excited right now in terms of just the whole direction of the tribal museum industry?
4: What has me the most excited... Um, is that tribal museums today are agents of change for their own community. They are community-driven, and they are being responsive to uh, what's happening in, in our communities and in our country. So they're developing and designing exhibitions that uh, support local tribal artists, that support movements and actions that are happening across the country. Um, they're creating... Uh, just very innovative um, exhibitions, and they offer programs and, uh, and events to, to gain a keener and deeper understanding of what's happening to a particular tribal community or region. Um, but collectively, you know, we hope, and which excites me is that they begin to work uh, together more, where they share traveling exhibitions. That's my hope for tribal museums. Uh, that we can develop tribal exhibitions that will travel to other points across the country.
0: And other museums that that feature native exhibits and, and share native culture and history, but aren't tribally operated and managed. And those could be other museums here in the United States. They could be abroad as well. What are tribal museums able to do differently? And what are they teaching those other institutions about Native American culture?
4: That's a great question, Sean, because um, I spent nearly 20 years working um, for the 2nd Onion Tribe of Michigan at the z Center of Anishinaabe Culture and Lifeways. And when we open the doors to the public, um, we also open the doors um, for those wanting to present um, our culture in the most authentic, genuine, and correct and truthful way. So what what we've been seeing is that some of our tribal museums are are first and foremost they have to uh, work for and provide uh, experiences and opportunities for their own tribal community first and foremost and then educate the rest of the world but it opened the doors for mainstream museums large and small historical societies uh, and county historical societies to come through the doors and ask, how how can we support the work you're doing? Can you help us be better at telling your truth? Because we found that for decades, you know, some of these mainstream small museums, historical societies were creating and interpreting our history without our consultation or input. So tribal museums and cultural centers are not only managing their own institution, but they are being asked to assist and consult on uh, the development and the reinterpretation of other exhibitions and museums, uh, you know, that are in their region.
0: Shannon, listening to you describe so much progress and and so much growth among tribal museums, it's just uh, really inspiring. But what are some future challenges that you see that lie ahead for tribal museums?
4: Well, future challenges are our past challenges. Um, oftentimes, and this is always a misconception, that the general public think tribal museums and cultural centers are closed to them; that they're not welcome there. Um, we experienced this when I was, you know, at the Zwing Center, and when I worked there for twenty years, almost twenty years, we still had people who were hesitant to come through the doors, and when they finally came through our door. They said, oh, we thought this was just for the tribal community, for tribal members only. And even though tribal museums and cultural centers across the country from what I can see visiting their websites open to the public is clearly on their landing page, there's still hesitancy from non-Native folks from walking in the door. Um, So that's going to be, you know, a, a challenge to get folks in the door to support what tribal museums are doing. And we hope Tribal Museum Day will help um, to to lessen uh, that misconception.
0: That, that is an interesting uh, anecdote to share, Shannon. And do you think uh, that in any way, I mean, obviously Tribal Museums Day is a way to address that. But do you think in general, maybe Tribal Museums could be doing a better job of outreach to inspire non-native guests to, to come in, and visit?
4: Well, you know, when you, when you think some of our tribal museums, they have only one staff person. And I'm thinking of, you know, a good sister friend at Black de Flambeau, you know, she's been running uh, her tribal museum for years and she's the only one that works there. So, you know, with the Association of American Affairs assisting and, and promoting tribal museums nationally, you know, it, we're, we're hoping this will kind of snowball and will will bring more people on board to draw more attention uh, to tribal museums, not just on Tribal Museums Day in the week, or the week following, but throughout the year, you know, and, and the association has a map, an interactive map that you can look at, and when you're planning your trips, You know, we're hoping people will vacation, take a look and see about visiting a tribal museum or cultural center. So we're looking for allies, for partnerships to help us promote the beauty and and richness that tribal museums across this country can offer people.
0: Shannon, I've visited tribal museums that were sprawling complexes, uh, many, many dollars spent, latest technology. And I've also visited tribal museums that were, were like one room. in in, in just a certain part of a building. So they really run the full gamut, don't they?
4: They do. They do. They really do. And um, we always have to, in the tribal museum world, we always give credit to the tribal museums that open their doors to our planning committees. We visited, you know, they visit from near and far. And that's one of the, the, the best relationships and cooperations that I see happening today is that tribal museums are sharing best practices And are helping reach behind and and pull forward other communities who are looking at establishing their own. So um, just miigwech to those that have been operating for years. Um, They have shown us the path forward.
0: Tribal Museums Day coming up December 2nd. More with Shannon Martin and our other guests when we come back from this break.
4: Nominee author Thomas Wieso's new food memoir, Survival Food, takes readers back to 1960s Wisconsin reservation life through food memories and recipes. And a proposed bill would see that tribes and the Department of Interior work together on buffalo restoration and management. That's on the next episode of The Menu on Native America Calling.
5: The association on american indian affairs welcomes all to tribal museums day december 2nd through the 10th tribal museums may offer no cost or reduced admission art markets and cultural demonstrations tribal museums day honors native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures a map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org tribal museums day the association on american indian affairs supports this show
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. We're celebrating tribal museums today and talking with museum staff about their work. How does your community benefit from a tribal museum and the work of its staff? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. And a note that the Association on American Indian Affairs is an underwriter for Native America Calling. Let's head over to Warm Springs, Oregon now, where we have Elizabeth Woody at the Museum at Warm Springs. And Elizabeth, thank you again for joining us. The Museum at Warm Springs marking its 30th year. Congratulations, and and how are you folks recognizing this achievement?
4: Oh,
3: thank you for the recognition there. Uh, we've spent a year uh, focusing on, on the uh, renewal aspect of our museum. It's been 30 long years, even longer, 40 years from its initial conception that started, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. So um, one is to increase people's presence on campus. We had a big spring cleanup day, and that may sound really odd that We should have something like that. But people were invited to come and help us tend to the uh, 24-acre campus. And, of course, it's a very unique ecosystem. It's a place where organized bird watchers come to to look at birds. And we have all kinds of critters, like, you know, we have wild turkeys roaming around right now. And we've had otters in the past. And, of course, there's the uh, rattlesnake. So that's part of it. A couple of ex- exhibitions, Territory Stories and a Long Memory of the Land, was a museum at Warm Springs uh, celebration of the architecture of the museum and what went into its design and implementation and the impact that the Warm Springs community had on the architect. It was a very wonderful process they underwent. And, of course, Don Stasny is on our board, and he was able to tell us of how it's improved their uh, understanding of cultural aspects to architectural design. We had a gala fundraiser, the first uh, fundraiser we had in like three years because of COVID and we had it in uh, Bend and uh, Rick West, who is the uh, uh, emeritus director of the National Museum of the American Indian came and spoke to us and Bobby Connor, who was on the board of the NMAI, as well as the executive director of Thomas Cultural Institute spoke. Um, we have, of course, our tribal member art show up right now, and we've had a whole summer of uh, master workshops. We had a rosebow baby board-making class. We had a beginner corn husk bag making. We had a putlapa corn husk making class, coiled cedar root basket, which is one of the um, uh, ta- uh, ta- you know, twining and coiling of these baskets is becoming rarer and rarer, so we needed to make sure that we had more representation there. And, of course, going out on the land and gathering all these materials, the toolies and whatnot, for other aspects. So it was a busy year. And
0: It sounds like a really busy, but a really productive year, just a, a full slate of activities and events. And, Elizabeth, to hear you describe Spring Cleanup Day, if you're able to get a bunch of folks to come out and volunteer their time to clean up like that, I'm thinking this museum has a lot of community support.
3: Yes, we do. We have also a lot of affiliations with other organizations in the area. Uh, we have a relationship with High Desert Museum. Uh, we have the Deschutes Land Trust that's always coming over and helping on various aspects of you know, getting us interested in putting, um, you know, butterflies, uh, appropriate plants. We don't have a, a, a landscaping per se. where We're going to tend towards the natural landscaping, but that also means lot of tending it's a cottonwood ecosystem and again of course uh, people when they come to the museum they build a relationship with it that i'm just now beginning to appreciate i hear from many people it's the best museum that they've ever attended uh, people who say they come back every year they make it a special trip to come from wherever they are in the country to visit to visit central oregon and come to the museum and they bring their children and their grandchildren <clears throat> so regionally locally Yes, we do have people who are very dedicated to the museum. It's a beautiful structure. and It's an interesting ecosystem.
0: Well, it also sounds like you folks uh, aren't suffering from a lack of visitors from other parts of the country, like you described some of these other museums that, that struggle to get people to come and visit. It sounds like that's not a problem there at the museum at Warm Springs. And Elizabeth, I know you folks were involved in a, in a recent repatriation there at the museum. Tell us more about that.
3: I'm not sure what you're speaking about with the recent repatriation. The tribes, of Confederate tribes of Warm Springs, had a repatriation that occurred with bringing some skulls back from New Zealand. Um, the I think it's in Wellington. I'm not sure of the institution. I uh, had a visitor from Oregon by the name of Rick Bartow who found out there were remains there from Warm Springs, and of course there was several years of planning and execution of that. And our um, museum staff person for a while, Roberta Kirk, is also the repatriation specialist and. Uh, she had to raise extra money for it, but she and our undertaker went to New Zealand and brought those remains back. And then people from all over the Northwest came to um, reinter and have have ceremony for the remains. And it's put, near our Wisham, put in our Wisham Cemetery, and we had Maori people from the Northwest come and visit. Of course, the people there at the museum came from New Zealand, of course. And then we also had the community gathering in the Celilo Longhouse, which is a beautiful longhouse, and eagles came to the burial. And it was amazing. I mean, these things just fall into place It's just by word of mouth.
0: I, I just can't get over that all the way remains as far away as New Zealand. And you just have to wonder, how do, how does that happen? How do how do remains of, of our ancestors uh, just travel across the globe like that? And uh, it really begs the question, Elizabeth. I mean, these efforts to to bring our ancestors home in that regard, would we be having as much success? Tribes across the nation having as much success as they've had in recent years without the work of tribal museums, such as the one there in Warm Springs?
3: Well, not so much the tribe, uh, not so much the museums. We are built to Smithsonian standards, which, uh, according to the way we look at it, we're built as a facilities to accept repatriation, uh, not for the remains, but for artifacts. We've received contact from other. Institutions who want to return things to the museum, so we can do that. Um, the other piece of that is that the uh, the Native, you know, the NAGPRA grant, NAGPRA Act, has been very, very important to the tribes, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest, because there was a lot of removal of our remains from the Columbia River when they flooded and dammed it. But also the change, the change in the, uh, the belief, anthropological belief that. American Indians are part of the native fauna and we're not human, I think, encourage some of that activity. And so our materials, we've had people from other Oregon tribes go to St. Petersburg, for example, and our remains from Warm Springs are also at the Burke Museum, UC Berkeley, and of course, you know, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Occasionally, there are things that are unearthed, and our repatriation officer also has to go and and assess that before any kind of uh, construction can be done. And in, in relationship to the tribes of Warm Springs, we have a treaty of 1855 that guarantees our rights and responsibilities and our sovereignty. So all the title of the lands that are in the 10.5 million acres of our former ceded territory, we have the right to hunt and fish and gather our traditional foods at. And title, our title is tied into the title of the uh, people who came and, and settled here. So we tried to teach uh, as much as we can about our sovereignty and about our treaty. In 2018, we had a really beautiful treaty conference that went for two days, and we had some preeminent scholars come and speak uh, to us, as well as uh, it was just well attended by tribal members as well as other people in the um, area. So I hope that answers that question. There's a lot more to it.
0: Yeah, no, no. It's a it's a a great rundown, uh, a good um, summary uh, of just some of these important issues that that you folks are working on along with your peers. And Elizabeth, I know you've been at the museum about five years. Um, what do you know about the early days of the museum? What was it like when it first opened thirty years ago? I'd imagine it was probably a lot smaller.
3: No, actually, it was built to this built to the size it is now. It was, um, I think. Uh, you know, pro- approximately $3.1 million from foundations and, and whatnot. Um, and well, actually $3,226,000 were raised to build the museum. And we are now in a kind of a phase of uh, changing aspects of the museum that needs to be updated for like our permanent exhibit. Our HVAC system is being replaced this uh, January and the end of December. And these are 30-year-old systems. And at the time the museum was built, they were built to standards. We've received a really nice grant uh, locally to upgrade and do an assessment on our accessibility. So that's also going to inform our permanent exhibit renewal design and as well enable us to uh, make a budget for what it will take to make us more handicapped accessible, more uh, available to people of differing attunements, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. Some people are Mm -hmm. visual, some people are tactile. And of course, there's a lot of things that have changed in the museum industry that we find exciting, like uh, doing virtual tours, being able to have um, apps that people can put on and go to our ancestral lands and we can explain to them and take a tour. For example, to the John Day River, to the Petroglyph Park in um, Washington State. So there's just things that could be happening here that has us excited but we need to really plan for it we need to raise the money because our tribes here the three tribes and the government here are really in a lot of difficulty trying to raise money just for our basic infrastructure we've had water crisis here for like three years where we haven't had drinkable water water potable water or we didn't even have water for our toilets in our house so there's just museum reflects its community and We feel that when we make our polish up our gemstone here, our turquoise here, or whatever you want to call it, it'll bring attention to the tribes and help the tribes raise the kind of funds it needs to do their infrastructure rebuild.
0: Right, right. That's the role there of the museum. That's a good point to make, Elizabeth. Well, thanks again for coming on the show today, and congratulations again on 30 years. And here's wishing you much success for the next 30 years, Elizabeth, with... The museum at Warm Springs. And let's go ahead now and move to Minnesota where we have Andy Vig. He's in Shakopee. He's the director of Ho Chokatati and uh, he's a member of the Shakopee Mittawunkenton Sioux community. Hi, Andy. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hey, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Well, your museum is a place where people can learn about Dakota culture. And what's the difference about your museum as compared to other museums with similar missions?
6: Yeah, I think the, the biggest difference, uh, you know, uh, our museum tells the story of our Dakota people from our perspective. And, um, you know, we do have some great museums in Minnesota, um, and they've done a pretty good job of, of telling that Dakota history um, but, you know, having it come from our people, I think was very important and in the intention uh, of why we built the, the museum
0: here. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a permanent exhibit there titled Dwellers of the Spirit Lake. It sounds like it's perhaps the signature exhibit there at the museum. Tell us more about it. How was it developed?
6: Uh, yeah, well, that, uh, Dwellers of the Spirit Lake, so our, our tribal, um, uh, council fire is and so that's what, what dwellers of the spirit lake is explaining um, the history of our people and um, we really uh, worked with our community members through our uh, culture and history preservation work group and it was a great cross section of different families different age groups and uh, we worked um, for quite a long time and we, we wrote the exhibit and um, what I like about it is uh, we did it um, we told it through a timeline. So we start with our creation stories, we go into pre-contact era, we go into the fur trade, uh, the treaties, and then unfortunately the dark chapter in Minnesota history with the, the uh, US Dakota War. Um, but then we showcase where our tribe is at today. And and I, I think that's what's been the most positive thing about our museum is that um you know, you just don't often see what tribes are doing today. And so uh, a big portion of that museum uh, shows that. But it was just a great uh, community effort, and everybody worked really hard, and we're just really proud of it. So,
0: Now, you're hosting an event this weekend uh, along with some of our other guests. What can people around the country learn by tuning into that event?
6: Yeah, so we're going to be one of the host sites here uh, December 2nd. Uh, we're actually going to be uh, going live, and you can find that online um, through the, the Tribal Museums Day. Um, but uh, we're going to offer uh, free admission. Uh, we have a nice gift shop here that focuses on uh, uh, you know, giving a platform to Native American artists, uh, authors. And, um, yeah, just come out and visit. Uh, we're located just south of Minneapolis, and uh, we're happy to be a part of this exciting
0: uh, time. Andy, I was at Mall of America earlier this year near the airport there in Minneapolis, and I know your tribe has a it has a storefront there. It has a location. And it, are, is that in any way affiliated with the museum or any of its exhibits? Um, not
6: necessarily. We do probably have some information there about our uh, museum. Um, but, yeah, we're located just about 20 minutes south of the Mall of America, um, and uh, you can find our information as well at uh, our ho uh, website and also shockbekota.org website so
0: thanks Andy now language preservation is such a such a huge concern in so many native communities and, and how are museums such as yours addressing that issue
6: um, yeah language. Uh, Preservation. So um, within our exhibit, you'll hear our Dakota language spoken throughout. Um, It is also written within the panels, Um, but that really is at the heart of who we are as Dakota people. Um, In our cultural center itself, we offer daily programming for our tribal members and really trying to uh, get out to the schools as well uh, with our language uh, revitalization efforts.
0: How big is your staff?
6: So we're currently at about uh, 12 people uh, or 12 staff. Uh, uh, you know, we, we work really hard. Um, one of the great things is uh, we've seen such a um, just a positive response from the public and our community. So we're growing every day. So um, we have 12 staff that work really hard to keep up with the demand.
0: Well, it sounds like they're certainly busy there in Shakopee. That's Andy Vig joining us here on the show and sharing some information about their tribal museum coming up December 2nd. It will be the second annual Tribal Museums Day, and there are events and activities planned at various tribal museums across the country. And we're learning all about those events and these activities, as well as the mission of many tribal museums. So give us a call if you have a tribal museum in your community, tell us what you like about it, what's cool about it, what they, what, the, what are the exhibits and what do you learn when you go to your tribal museum and, and how do you find pride in, in connecting with your culture through your tribal museum? Our phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848.
5: Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing, who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk, Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk, Inc. supports this show.
0: This is Native America calling, and we're focusing on Native and tribally run museums today. How important are tribal museums to the communities they represent? let us know at 1-800-996-2848, one 996 2848 Andy Vig is on the line in Shakopee, Minnesota. He's the director of Ho-Choka-Tati. And Andy, how did you get into museum work? And and, and why is it important for, for other native people to, to consider museum work as well?
6: Yeah, well, I guess uh, my, my path, uh, uh, with my current role here really started when I started learning my language in uh, high school and college. And then, um, you know, our community really wanted a cultural center. And so I was uh, involved with this uh, work group that helped design and uh, build our current uh, cultural center museum. And so, you know, really I, I put a lot of time into this as well as uh, our uh, fellow community members. Um, and and then really this job opened up. And so uh, I, I've kind of been involved for about 15 years on the project. And uh, I just, it, it's really a passion of mine. So I uh, get to go to work every day and
0: love what I do. And Andy, how do you think tribal museums and Native museum staff such as yourself, how do you think you folks have, have helped change or Made museum culture evolve over the years.
6: Well, you know it's an interesting question. Um, you know, sometimes we we ask ourselves if if museums are really even a Dakota uh, concept to save these things. But what we what we found is that uh, we're very fortunate that these things are here. Um, it's a it's a direct uh, link to our past and. Uh, especially with our history we lost so much so now that now that we have these things we'll preserve them and they help educate and I think that's been the biggest thing is education and what we're seeing now is uh, I think the school systems the public school systems are are finally uh, catching up with the narrative that accurately displays our uh, Dakota history and uh, we're helping with that and And so we're seeing a lot of these schools come out and and we're collaborating with different organizations to make sure that narrative is correct.
0: And Elizabeth, how about you? Do you see Native Museum staff uh, driving change and evolution with regard to museum culture?
3: Um, yes, I do. There, there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that our staff, um, for example, right now we're down to three. We normally are up to 11 and have been up to like 24. But each person brings their family legacy and their family heritage with them when they come into the museum to work. And um, also, for example, of the three that's here, we've all attended the Institute of American Indian Arts and have had a multiple cultural experience uh, through that institution and as well as a you know creative uh, aspect of it being very important. You know, creativity, applying it to our projects is also important, and including and listening to people who, who are interested in, in the exhibits that we put on. We have people who want to see the collection. The collection is very unique and is probably one of the largest and most complete collections I've heard. So, yeah, the staff brings a lot to the change that's been happening here.
0: Thanks, Elizabeth. Let's head now to Alaska, north to Alaska, where we have Angie Demma on the line. She is the senior curator at the Alaska Native Heritage Center. And Angela, thank you again for for joining today's show. And I know that the Alaska Native Heritage Center was just recognized by the National Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries and Museums. I want to congratulate you along with everyone else there at the museum. and, And please tell us more about the award.
7: You. Yeah, so a Tom um, uh, honored us uh, with that um, lovely honor. We're um, we're doing a lot of groundbreaking work, and um, it's really amazing to have people recognize uh, your work, um, especially when you're from Alaska. Where that that often people people don't think about us up here, even though um, almost 40% of um, recognized tribes are located here. So it's a really big honor. Um, we've been working um, or Um, next year will be our 25th anniversary, so we've been working at it a long time, so this is our first time getting a national award like this from ATOM, Um, and recognition goes a long way, as you know.
0: Well, tell us more about the museum. What makes it unique?
7: So, it was, it came, the, the museum up here and the Alaskan Native Heritage, you know, cultural center came out of the community, so it came out of The Alaska Federation of Natives um, coming together and deciding that um, there needed to be a space for Alaska Natives to tell their own story uh, and and build a cultural center where people from rural Alaska can come and feel welcome and know um, and learn and urban uh, Alaska Native people can also learn um, here in this center and feel comfortable um, and so it's, it's something born out of community, which is a lovely um, idea. And Paul Tialana uh, was really uh, influential. He's a, a, a leader who is uh, from King Island um, and really spearheaded the idea of this cultural center and sharing culture um, from a first person's perspective in Alaska, where, where there's you know, 20 different languages of Alaska Native um, people, so Mm -hmm. it's a very rich, cultural, diverse place.
0: And Angie, that seems like it would be a challenge. As you mentioned, there are so many tribes in Indigenous communities there in the state of Alaska. How do you pick and choose, and how do you manage so many cultures and history in one museum?
7: It is, you're, you're exactly right, it is a challenge. Um, We have 18 um, Alaska native leaders who comprise our board of directors. That's our first line. Um, And then we have cultural advisory committees for each of the five main regional groups. So there are 25 people that are really helping us stay accurate and, um, and making sure we're relevant to the needs of the community. So it's a, it's a wonderful um, way and, um, way that we've been organized that really continues to help us grow into the future and innovate.
0: The Alaska Native Heritage Center is spearheading an initiative on boarding school healing. Tell us more about that and the need for that initiative there in Alaska.
7: Right. So as you know, um, you know Deb Holland has been working hard with her Road to Healing, which actually um, just came up in October um, here to Alaska. Um, for a listening session here with elders. Um, and then um, the, the, we changed over um, our event uh, quickly that afternoon um, after her event and had a potlatch, a Denaina Haida potlatch, the first of its kind, to welcome a new healing totem pole um, to be raised that's in honor of boarding school survivors. Um, and it really, that also was born out of community. An elder came to us. Um, her name is Norma, Norma Jean Dunn, and she requested um, that we do a healing totem pole in honor of all of those survivors and boarding schools. As um, you know, most of your audience will know, um, were a really um, colonial um, time in history that isn't well documented in books, and um, and is a, a period of time that really a lot of change happened. Um, and so, um, we have both um, an indigenous researcher here named Ben Jasek who's really doing a lot of primary research, um, and then Emily Edenshaw, our, our CEO, is also doing her PhD right now um, on um, the connections between cultural tourism and boarding schools. And the, the boarding school initiative um, will, will grow into helping uh, the community heal. It's really the, through a healing lens that um, you know you have to know your truth before you can heal it you have to open the wound and know what it is and so um, that boarding school initiative is is you know coming right from the community here and is something that we're very um, honored to look into and and part of the exciting um, um, things that happened as a result of that research that we didn't expect was also these ethical repatriations that are happening as a result of, you know, mm-hmm. looking into collections in places that, you know, maybe those objects shouldn't be in cultural belonging. So, you no, know, it's it's um, a fantastic um, direction that's very relevant to communities across Alaska and across the globe.
0: And Angie, w- through this research, uh, have you folks uncovered any, Information or, or facts that were surprising, new developments with regard to the boarding school history there in the state of Alaska.
7: Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the main uh, misconceptions um, that we went in as well with is thinking that Carlisle was the first school um, of its kind, um, when actually uh, Alaska and Oklahoma were really the the place where um, the the assimilative Schools were perfected, and the ideas behind them and the model. Um, so Alaska was somewhere that um, that was at the center of um, how boarding schools came about and um, um, what their goal was. In that, um, you know, it's connected directly to resource extraction, and it's the only time in history where a lot of churches come together um, and um, and church. Um, you know, leaders get together and decide um, where they want to carve up Alaska, and decide where where um, you know where they want to practice, so they can um, uh, use that information and uh, and you know carve up a state based on um, where the resources are, and and then you know assimilate uh, through um, through you know colonization. Um,
0: Sorry, I lost my train. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no worries. That's good information. I didn't realize that, that the, the model for the boarding school was was really honed uh, in Alaska and Oklahoma and in those specific states, those regions. Good information, Angie. And with regard to developing and recruiting the next generation of museum curators and staff, how is the Alaska Native Heritage Center working to make that happen?
7: Yeah. So. So one thing um, that's, you know, I'm, I'm a non-native um, curator here in Alaska, and there are not a lot of indigenous curators, so one of um, our programs, and it's not just in our collections department, but in Hozun, um, which is the, grail, the, the trail is good in Koyukon, Athabaskan, is, is a program that we have through ANA um, that um, is helping um, on-the-job training um, and two, two um, apprentices work with me directly so that we can build the next generation of Alaska Native curators um, and which is also part of that reclamation and healing related to colonization and boarding schools and all of those things and you know repairing um, and um, giving voice to um, the next generation of Alaska Native peoples
0: Angie, thanks again for joining us from Anchorage, Alaska, and Shannon. Shannon Martin, I want to go back to you as as we wind down the show. And there might be somebody listening to our show right now thinking, "Geez, I wouldn't. I've never thought of a of a museum career before, but this really interests me. I'm fascinated. I want to learn more." What do you want to tell that person, Shannon?
4: Well, I'd like to tell them that uh, when you work in a tribal museum or cultural center. Uh, there is no single day that is the same. You are um, you feel the energy and and listen to the direction of the community and what their their hopes and, and needs are for you to serve uh, in some capacity to illuminate culture to reactivate uh, language or culture but also you know it's a place that is is you know the mechanism to, Search throughout the world to bring home lost aspects of our culture. You know, tribal museums are looking overseas uh, to bring home uh, not only our ancestors, but um, our items of cultural patrimony and sacred and ceremonial objects that were shipped overseas. And um, the Association on American Indian Affairs is doing a lot of positive work in, in supporting tribal museums in these efforts. Uh, they have a tribal working group where uh, not only tribal museum and cultural center uh, professionals uh, participate, but also tribal historic preservation officers. And they are working cooperatively to uh, search overseas and bring home uh, what has been lost to to our, our communities and our people. And um, I think um, it's exciting. It's exciting. in in ways that um, are still evolving, especially when we think about digital collections that are online in many uh, federal and uh, national repositories across the country. So there's tribal knowledge and and intellectual property that are stored in these spaces. And tribal museums are at the forefront of uh, making their way through these doors to bring home You know, wax cylinder recordings um, Mm. that are 150 years old to bring home uh, photographs, to bring home, um, you know, recipe books. And what's happening today is that tribal museums are also working to bring home seeds, heirloom seeds that were collected for generations during the salvage salvage archaeology anthropology movement. So our seed relatives are stored in some of these repositories and, you know, tribal historic uh, preservation officers, cultural centers and museums are now making inroads to bring home seeds that may not have ever been, um, you know, enjoyed the fruits of those seeds for generations and are, are now coming back home.
0: The the full scope uh, of the work that you folks do is just so fascinating and really do appreciate all of your service, all of your dedication to the communities that you work in, as well as Native communities across the country. So big thank you to our guests today, Elizabeth Woody, Shannon Martin, Angie Demma, and Andy Vig. Join producer Andy Murphy tomorrow for a new episode of The Menu on Native America Calling. That's our indigenous food feature. We'll talk again
5: soon, I'm
0: Sean Spruce.
5: This holiday season, you're not alone. If you're in recovery from alcohol, the festive time of year may be challenging, but we have a community of support. Recover Alaska has resources for yourself or loved ones, including screenings, inspiring stories and treatment options. Help spread the word and keep the movement going by making a donation. Learn more at recoveralaska.org.
4: Open enrollment for Medicare in the Marketplace Qual qual toast she warned in Carlos Miriam for next me which treatment healthcare.gov who watch qual toast 1800 318
7: 2596 she asks map me centers for medicare and medicaid services
0: Native America calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque New Mexico by Kwanek Broadcast Corporation, a Native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio
6: Network.